We are super excited, pun intended, to welcome our newest sponsor, Supergirl. That's S-O-U-P-E-R-G-I-R-L. Supergirl is a kosher women-founded food delivery business. All of their soups are delicious, plant-based, and available for delivery throughout the U.S. except Alaska and Hawaii. Sorry to our Alaskan and Hawaiian listeners. Hopefully that will be delivered to you soon. In the meantime, those of you who want to try Supergirl, they have kindly offered our listeners a 20% discount. Just enter the code RUN20 at checkout to receive 20% off your subscription. I've been a Supergirl subscriber for a number of years. And what's really nice is that you can adjust your subscription depending on what's going on during the week. There's no obligation. You're not locked in for months or a year or anything like that. My favorite soups during the summer are the gazpachos. They are delicious, and uh, I just love their soups. They're healthy, plant-based, kosher, and it's really nice to know you're supporting a local business that ships nationwide. So give Supergirl a try. You won't regret it. And thanks so much to Supergirl for sponsoring our podcast. While we pay a lot of attention to the shoes that we wear during our runs, what we put on our feet after our runs is just as important. That's why we love Ufo's recovery shoes. As a recovery product, Ufo's absorb 37% more impact than traditional footwear, which helps your feet, your ankles, your hips, and lower back recover faster. So while slipping into your favorite pair of Ufo's after a hard workout gives you that ooh and ah feeling, you can wear them all day long. We wear ours around the house, while working from home at our stand-up desk, or even out and about running errands. Check out the Ufo's line at www.ufos.com. Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. So tell me what's going on with you this week. What is going on this week? I've got uh, one of my three kids. Well, two of my three kids are now uh, at home. I had one at home and now I've got an extra one who's home and my third comes home on Friday. So um, I feel like summer is going by really quickly and uh, have all three kids back in the house as of Friday. Uh, so that'll that'll be nice. How about you? Um, everything's good. I, your kids have been at different camps, I know, and we both feel so grateful that our kids are having, um, a a summer, you know, not that last summer we made do. And I think, I think we did the best we could, but it's nice to see them back with long lost friends, having the experiences that, you know, they so desire at their age. So it makes my heart happy. And I got to say, like, even when I'm having a bad day this summer, I am, I just feel so much lighter knowing that my kids are doing okay. Um, so much of the stress of the past 15 months, and I know you can relate, really wasn't necessarily about me at all. It was just worrying about everyone else. And at the top of that list, of course, is our children. So knowing that they're doing okay is, is, is a huge comfort. Um, so to that end, it is summer and we talk about the weather a lot. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that here in the DC area, Saturday was a nightmare. <laughs> I don't know if you experienced the, the hurt that I did on your run, but I will just say that normally you and I talk about the heat and humidity. We've had multiple conversations on this and, and those who've listened to us for a while don't hear us complain that much on a personal note about the heat and humidity, but we are very understanding, empathetic, and do what we can to help all of our runners manage the dew points and things like that in the summer. But there was something really special about the dew point and the conditions on Saturday. And oh my gosh, I was really dragging. And typically on a long run, when conditions are optimal, I have no problem running, you know, anywhere between like, 845 to 930s when, you know, depending on the terrain and how I'm feeling that day. Um, I ran my entire 18 miler on Saturday at a pace of 10 to 1010. And I was working really hard. I took in 60 ounces of electrolytes. Like I had a bottle, I refilled it and then refilled it again and, you know, did all my nutrition and everything else. And I felt so depleted at the end of that run. And I know I wasn't alone because my goodness, we probably received from almost every runner we coach in this area, an email, a comment and final surge about their experience on Saturday. 
So how about yours? And in contrast (laughs) though, in contrast, as soon as Sunday rolled around, right, it dried out and it was beautiful. So we had a lot of runners who had, for one reason or another, couldn't do their long run on Saturday, who were very grateful they did it on Sunday. And really the first three days of this week, um, it was Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. So uh, have have felt much um, better. And we've then seen the comments come through that, oh, I feel much better now. And so it's just a good, again, a good like real world reminder that the heat is real. The effects of heat are real. And even on runners like us that don't tend to suffer as much as, as some other runners do. And, and we have some runners who really cannot run in this. They physically um, break down in this heat and they've been going to the treadmill. Um, we've been shortening their runs. Uh, we've been adding walk breaks to their runs, but there there is a category of runners that just um, really physically suffer even more, more so in, in this heat. So that's, um, I know we talk about it a lot, but we saw it, you're right. We saw it on Saturday, not only our runners, but our local runners groups that, you know, have groups that run who, you know, we heard from them as a whole that it was just brutal. So, um, I think we've got another, I don't know, what do you think? Maybe like six weeks of, of potentially brutal weather here in the DC area. But, um, but I keep saying, um, I'd much rather train through the summer for a fall race than train through the winter for a spring race where you may have, um, you know, heat on race day that you're definitely not used to now, at least all of this heat is during our training, uh, physiological adaptations that are happening that are going to make us stronger in the fall. That's what, that's what I keep telling myself at least. Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. But but boy, that was rough. So for those listening that are still kind of feeling the effects of a really hot, unusually humid run on Saturday, you are not alone. And for those who got to run on Sunday instead, you won the, you won the weather lottery. That was a much better choice. And uh, what a difference a day makes. Yeah. And I would say too, that, um, you know, a lot of people are complaining, um, in the heat of last week and then Saturday of just heavy legs, fatigue legs, um, just more achy and all of that is, is certainly related to the weather. So, um, so if that's what you've been feeling recently, just, um, you know, adjust your, adjust your pace, adjust your effort and realize too, that the time that you're out there, um, is really what matters. So if you can't get out, if, you know, if you just, you can't spend three hours doing 18 miles. Um, you know, that if it's 16 miles, when you get to three hours, just call it a day. That's same, same time on your feet, same strain on your body. And, uh, and, and that's just what we do in the heat. Amen. So moving on, um, we, right after we recorded our last episode, we found out we received a note from the BAA that there will indeed be an expo this year at the Boston Marathon. So that was something that we weren't sure. And uh, Dave hadn't said anything as to whether there would or wouldn't be one, and they'd made the formal announcement. So it's, it's definitely nice to hear that there's an expo. Not that I personally enjoy going to the expo for that long, but just knowing that they are putting plans in place, um, just as Dave said, they intended to make this Boston, um, as much of a Boston as, you know, a spring experience. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a good sign that, uh, the plans are underway and it, it also is a good sign that they probably are not going to be limiting spectators. If there's going to be an expo inside, I can't imagine that there would be that much limitation of spectators outside. What do you think? I agree. My only slight little fear in the back of my head, and you've probably heard the rumblings too, are of the, you know, the new variant, the Delta variant mm-hmm. that's out there. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I've heard some backpedaling on schools already and, um, you know, that you know, recommend that kids wear masks in schools, which, you know, I think is obviously a good idea if there's still um, stuff circulating out there. But um, I I just get the fear in the back of my head that we may have to backtrack a little bit on some of our um, precautions that we take. And will that affect an event like the Boston Marathon? Probably. So keeping my fingers crossed, hoping that we go in the right direction. But get a little nervous just you know we've been through so many um ups and downs and false starts and um so I'm, I'm i'm gonna keep that in the back of my head but cautiously optimistic i did book my boston flight this week so that was a big big step for me so um really pretty cool to think that we actually will be back in boston in october yay 
So, and for those who are still looking for hotel rooms, um, you know, check, check out some of the sites like hotwire booking.com hotels.com. Sometimes things pop up, so it's worth a try. We know marathon tours is, is all of those options kind of disappear really, really quickly, but just know that there are rooms that will pop up if you're still looking for one. Yeah. I think an interesting option too this year, especially because of how, um, things are structured is staying a little bit farther outside of Boston. Like you really could stay like 30, 40 minutes outside of Boston and drive in or get a, you know, ride share in, in the morning and get dropped off at the buses and get on the buses and go since, um, you know, it, it, it I, I don't, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like in the morning this time, but it may be a little bit easier this year to stay a little bit farther out and, um, and make your way in that morning. The most complicated logistic would be after the race. If you're staying 30, 40 minutes out of the city, getting back to where you're staying, figuring that out, especially if you have a flight leaving the same day as the race, which, you know, we live on the edge. We always do that. We always come in, you know, Friday or Saturday and stay until Monday night and live large and fly out the same day as the race. And I know a lot of people don't do that, but for those who do, staying outside of the city may be a little tricky. Right. Yep. Good point. So up next, we have a really interesting guest today. So her name is Jill Colangelo. And Jill um, was an ultra endurance athlete. She will talk about her running history and and was a very serious uh, former triathlete and ultra runner. And she went back to school at the age of 41 to better understand the delicate relationship between mental health and participation in ultra-endurance sports and earned a master's degree from the Harvard Extension School. And in earning that master's degree, she took her own experience with training, racing, and suffering from overtraining syndrome to study the prevalence and type of mental health disorders present in ultra-endurance athletes. So she will talk about her study, but basically she polled over 500 endurance athletes between the ages of 19 and 73 to participate in a general mental health survey to ascertain any prior diagnosis. And she had them answer a full patient health questionnaire as well as an eating attitudes test. And she gathered this data. She'll explain her methodology and her conclusions based on the methodology. And it's really, really interesting. And how we found out about Jill's study and why we wanted to have her on is um, one of the runners in the Montgomery County Roadrunners Club who I've run with an XMP named John O'Dwyer, shout out to John, sent us an article published by a very well-known writer for Outside Magazine, Susan Lackey. And the article's titled, Mental Health Used to be Taboo in Sports. These researchers are changing that. So the article features Jill Colangelo's thesis on mental health and endurance athletes. But unfortunately, the article is a paywall. So a lot of, we posted the article, but we know a lot of folks couldn't read it. And we just were blown away by the research. Lisa, what was your reaction when you read this article? Yeah, I actually had to read it twice because it was, um, it really, um, it it pulled together and and really, um, I would say, codified or proved proved to us um, kind of what we have sensed all along as being runners ourselves in a in a community that has a lot of um, athletes that spend a lot of time training and coaching runners Um, you know we've always felt that and we've kind of joked about it before and it's not really a joke but um, we've always said well running is therapy for a lot of people I mean I've used I said I use it as therapy you've said you know we'd say running is our therapy and um, but but what that sort of sugarcoats is that we see a lot of runners in our running community and in runners we coach that have um, serious mental health issues um, that they may be addressing or maybe starting to address or maybe not quite addressing yet, and they are using their running to to manage that. And to some extent, that's that's healthy, and we've seen that a lot where it really helps um, people cope with with stressful times in their lives. Um, but we also kind of always ask ourselves the question, is it the chicken or the egg? Um, is somebody, um, you know, do they have the mental health issues and then they're using the running to deal with it? Or is the running um, contributing to that, that those, you know, those mental health issues? Like where is, where is it coming from and how, and, and, and what are the um, boundaries? Like what is too much? Like what, what is kind of 
where where the running is becoming so um, so much of your life that it's uh, you know that it's either harming your health, your mental health, or your physical health. Um, so we we just sense that a lot in our community, and there's not a lot of talk about it, and there isn't a lot of um, you know in there there just isn't a lot of uh, dialogue going on about it. So I read it twice, and I just said this all makes so much sense. And again, it just you know kind of uh, proved what we what we sense um, anecdotally. So um, I thought it was great. And you can actually um, go to her website, uh, jillcolangelo.com, I think it is. And she has her whole abstract, her whole thesis online there. So you can actually, instead of reading the article, um, you can read the actual study, which I think uh, is really, is really eye-opening too. For sure. And we'll link that to the show notes and make sure people can easily find Jill and the study. Um, but we really appreciated that Jill not only took the time to pivot her career and spend a lot of time doing this research, but we also appreciated that in this episode, she shares her own story and her own vulnerabilities and what led her to pursue this path. And we also really try ourselves to bring mental health into the conversation. We've talked a lot on this podcast with each other and with guests about mental health. We'd love for mental health to just never be a struggle to talk about. Um, For example, we often tell runners or athletes of any type, um, hey, you want to start this sport or you want to come back after injury, make sure you go see your physical therapist or head over to the doctor, make sure you're okay and that you've recovered fully before starting. We don't think twice about saying, go see your physical therapist. And wouldn't it be amazing if one day all of us collectively, not just as athletes, but as people use the word therapist in such a natural way as we use other words like doctor, dentist. Right. You have your therapist check up before you start a training cycle and make sure you're going into it healthy. And that's something I thought was really important um, that Jill discusses and, and Jill touches on is that um, there there is a, you know, if you're not in the right place mentally, um, the, the training can um, kind of take over and then lead to really serious physical problems. So Um, So, yeah, so I think that's, and um, I I think that's probably my biggest takeaway from her, from our conversation with her and from her study is that getting that dialogue going and normalizing uh, discussions about mental health. For sure. So we won't delay the conversation anymore. We'll, we'll kick it over to our interview with Jill Colangelo, but Lisa, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great week, Julie. Bye. Bye. Jill Colangelo, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so grateful that you are taking the time to come on our show. Uh, So before we get started into the nitty gritty as to why you're here, why don't you give us a little background about yourself and your running history? Sure. Thank you for having me, by the way. It's really, it's, uh, it's great to be here and I'm so excited to talk both. Um, all I have to say, I'm, I'm hearing Julie and Lisa, and I keep wanting to say Wendy and Lisa for obvious reasons, which I'm sure maybe you heard people say before. <laughs> um, so my background um, as a runner is, um, you know, I started off playing sports in school. So I always ran just because you had to run to train for your sport, right? For soccer and all these different things that I was, I was doing. Um, I didn't run, I would say to run probably until I was in my twenties before that time, I was just kind of always, you know, training for whatever sport. And then it became sort of more of a, a passion to run just because I just started to enjoy it at, at, in my twenties. Um, and I, I guess I used running as a way to kind of, get better after I had been diagnosed with celiac disease when I was in my early 20s. I was really weak and I was exhausted and tired all the time. And I was um, one of those people who, when I got diagnosed, I really lost a lot of weight immediately. And when I did, it was that, it was that kind of weight when you lose it and you go, oh my God, what happened to her? And it was, cause I just, you know, I looked like, like a dehydrated chicken or something. So um, I used running to help me feel stronger and to get my appetite up again and to kind of feel better. So I trained for my first marathon um, actually when I lived in New York City. And then after that, of course, you know, you just get bit by the bug. And um, so I uh, trained for all kinds of different road races. Then I kind of switched into triathlon 
And then from triathlon, I kind of got bit by the ultra bug. And so I trained for ultra marathon for all the rest of my running career. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. So tell us a little bit about um, kind of, you know, as you progressed um, through the sport, um, you know, and we'll get into your research and how you led into your research, um, but your own training, um, you know, from what we understand kind of led to, to overtraining and, and kind of tell us how that evolved. Like, how did you get from training for marathons and triathlons, which a lot of us do to ultras, which again, people do, but how did the cross over the line to, to, to what you, what you might think of as, as overtraining and, and what you define as, how do you define overtraining? Right. So, um, I was, I think when I started to turn the corner into using training in a way that was not allowing me to be at my best as an athlete. And what I mean by that is that in my definition of being the best as an athlete, that you spend as much time training as you do thinking about recovery. And so when you are training more than your body can recover for, you're, you're not treating yourself well as an athlete. So I will say I turned that corner. Um, honestly, right around the time I got divorced. And, you know, I, uh, I was like just about 30 when I got divorced. Um, I was really going through a tough time and I kind of started to train more and more and I got more and more excited about feeling powerful in a different way. It was doing things for me mentally and physically. And I really felt an equal amount of excitement about the physical accomplishments as how well, I was kind of coping with that really difficult moment in my life. So then when I kind of transferred into the ultra world, I already knew like how good it felt to go long. It's just that I was going long in a different way. And then, um, you know, I just was using, I was using ultra marathon training to kind of escape from a lot of things. Um, I was feeling very insecure at the time you know, kind of a little bit lost in the career sort of direction, a little bit lost in the direction sort of direction, just a little lost in general. And ultra training was a really great, great place for me to put a credible and, and um, concrete goal. I had a ton of support from a community, I had a running partner, you know, and it was like, I could get that hit of feeling good about myself by getting on ultra sign up and click in the button to, you know, sign up for a race. I always knew that that was an easy way for me to feel better. And of course, when you are training, particularly for longer distances, you get a lot of structure out of your life. So that was, it was doing all of that for me. It was like, I could structure my whole year around races and training and so on and so forth. And it was, it felt really good to be able to do that. Um, unfortunately, I did not take into consideration the very good advice that I had been given by a number of people who were real veteran, old school, ultra people. I trained in Massachusetts. That's kind of, I mean, anyone who's out there who runs in Blue Hills, hi, everybody. Um, <laughs> I, uh, that's where I learned. I learned from some of the, the best, um, most consistent ultra runners out there who were, you know, again, what we would consider the old school. And for them, it was like, you know, 100 miler a year, that's what you did. And all the rest of the time you kind of like played around those lower distances and kind of got yourself ready for that one 100 miler per year. And I ignored all that good advice from all of those people and just decided no limits, right? Like I can run forever. And so I just um, kind of blew my brains out. So. So you talk about to the community and is there a, a tendency or a sense that um, you know, what you're training and what you're doing. You, know, you did mention that, you know, most of the seasoned ultra marathoners were only doing one a year, but in terms of the training, does that give you kind of like a sense of like, yeah, everybody's doing this or was, was there support for the, you know, did anyone say like, Hey, you're doing too much or, or did you feel like you were in a, you know, company of like-minded people who kind of supported that, um, you know, that tendency towards overtraining? Yeah, I think the tendency in the ultra community, as I knew it, and again, I trained on the East Coast, sort of in the Massachusetts area, and I trained on the West Coast because, of course, I had a good sense to move myself to California, which is where everybody should go when they're trying to ease off on their trail running career, right? Just 
definitely take it easy by running right in the Bay Area. That'll do it for you. Um, so I, um, you know, I, I definitely think, I don't think, I know that in the community of that I ran with, um, you know, more was always better. Um, everyone would kind of, I wouldn't say goad each other into doing things, but it was that kind of sheepish, like, oopsie, today was supposed to be a rest day. Like today was supposed to be a, we were only going to do 10 miles today. Whoopsie, you know, that kind of thing. And it was that very sheepish kind of like, I shouldn't be doing this. So I'm going to do it anyway. And you get the thumbs up from people. And then, you know, it's, and, and it's not just the sort of encouragement to always go longer. There's a lot of, I will say, ancillary behaviors that are part of the community that also get supported and kind of um, normalized. And that's really the word that I hope everyone can take from some of this discussion, which is that it is not strange for you to be, to, for all these things, you, you become habituated to all these ways of living and all of these ways of living and all of this, um, the, the things that you do, the habits that you have, they, they become normalized by the community. So you really don't see that there could potentially be some concern or some concern building. So you just kind of go along with it, yeah. Talk about some of those ancillary. What are those ancillary um, um, things that that you know go along with that? Yeah, and that's it. Is it can be anything from um, well. Let me go back and just say that we're talking about a very specific demographic of people, and this was one of the things that sort of compelled me to study this group is because this is not a group of elite as we think of it, elite athletes. It's not collegiate athletes. We're not talking about people that are working with a coach in a lot of cases. We're talking about people that are kind of gunning it out there on their own. They're sourcing their training from internet, friends, running groups, et cetera. They also have quite a bit of disposable income and time, you know, and that's why our, our demographic tends to be a little bit older. Um, and so they are invested in a number of different ways, right? And of course I was one of them too. So you have a little bit of money, you can travel to the races, you can buy the shoes and the gear and whatever. And it's pretty low maintenance, as you know, in the ultra world, it's kind of like, you know, shoes and a hydration pack and you're pretty good. But, you know, the best races are far and fancy and, you know, you have to have the income to do that. You have to have the time and the independence to be able to schedule your life around really many, many hours of training and, and potentially travel. Um, so we're talking about a specific kind of person here. And those types of people tend to do other things and learn about other things um, to support this sort of habit of participating in, in a sport. And again, it's not just... It, it, you know, you can look at the triathlon world and the ultra world, if we're talking about sort of the Ironman distances, they really take it another step because of the expense of the equipment and so forth. But really in, in these ultra endurance um, populations, it's like there's some odd eating habits involved. There's maybe some odd um, alcohol consumption involved. There is a lot of time spent away from the home. So there is sometimes tension and sometimes isolation involved. Um, in many cases, if people are either recovering from a psychological or a physiological concern, let's say anything from addiction up to things like major life changes, divorce, et cetera, we've got people in a very transitional kind of stage in their life who are finding solace in an activity. And so those groups of people tend to have, like I said, those kind of habits and behaviors that might be in any other circumstance considered to be a coping mechanism, but they become again normalized in this community as sort of the default rather than something maybe to look at or something odd. Jill, before we continue, we just want to thank you for sharing your story and uh, frankly your vulnerabilities because for you to get to the point, um, and you'll share in a moment, about more about your research, you had to do some self-evaluation and, and the fact that you are selflessly sharing all of this with the world because you want to make sure that athletes don't make the same mistakes. Um, just props to you and thank you for sharing your story with us today. You're so welcome. And honestly, I think um, I think the whole part of this was that it snuck up on me. Um, and again, I think my experience with overtraining syndrome um, was the sort of thing that compelled me to figure out why I sort of overdid it. Like what was the impetus for me to have done that? And that's really where it came from. And so it's sort of, um, it would be it would be disingenuous of me to start researching something that I didn't 
really have this sort of thread of, um, you know, understanding of behind sort of where it came to be. Because of course, my, even though my research isn't on overtraining syndrome, my own personal experience with that really shook me. And, um, you know, it was just something that was, it was terrifying in the sense that I always tell people, I talk to people a lot about overtraining syndrome, just because of my own experience, but also because it does thread in and out of the, the literature and, and certainly in and out of my research. And um, people will say to me like, well, how do I know if I have overtraining syndrome? And I always say that, you know, if you have to ask, you don't have overtraining syndrome. When you have overtraining syndrome, you think you're dying. Like real overtraining syndrome, you think that you are dying. It is alarming. The symptoms, the way you feel, you're not sure if you have like some kind of terrible disease. You are in a panic mode. You feel like your whole body is falling apart. And so that- All right, well, let's, let's stop for a second and let's go back a little bit and just share with us a little bit more specifically what does overtraining syndrome look like, which is what you had versus overtraining? Can you explain the difference between the word overtraining versus overtraining syndrome or OTS and what yours look like? Sure. Overtraining is kind of our general colloquial term for uh, training too much. And it really doesn't have um, any specific, I mean, it could be anything. It's, It's pretty wide open. When we talk about overtraining syndrome, we're talking about a situation in which Um, there are a constellation of symptoms that will pop up. Really what's happening there is you're having a systemic kind of breakdown originating with the endocrine system that is not able to keep up with the demand of the body. And so the symptoms that we get all together um, point us to what ends up being a diagnosis by exclusion because there really is no diagnostic criteria specific. There are no specific biomarkers to tell us, yes, boom, this person has overtraining syndrome. Um, And so what we have done is we have said that, I shouldn't say we because I'm certainly not involved in in that part of the science, but there, we talk about something overreaching versus overtraining, and that's the, the simplest way to look at it. Overreaching, it, 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 they are defined by the difference between them, which is the amount of time it takes to recover. And so, if overreaching would generally be like, you know, um, days to weeks to months to recover, and, and overtraining syndrome is something that can take months, if not years, to recover from. And if, for those of you in the old school, you'll remember hearing years and years ago about Jeff Rose, who was, quote unquote, this mysterious illness. So we're at the very beginnings, relatively speaking, of understanding like what this really ha- is, is happening. H- how can we understand what's happening um, in terms of like diagnosing and figuring out what is really going on and assessing biomarkers to be able to make a definitive diagnosis? But in lieu of that, you know, we understand that if someone is showing signs of all these um, these different things, you know, can range from um, things like uh, GI distress, musculoskeletal stuff, um, you know, insomnia, night sweats, um, sexual dysfunction for men and for women, uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, so many different things can be wrong. I think probably the thing that puts people in the doctor's office is probably the night sweats. That's what terrifies people because they immediately think like they have cancer or Addison's disease. But um, that the, the fact of that being so terrifying was what made me start asking questions. So if that makes sense, it was, it was that um, really that shocking and really that scary that it was like, what, why did I get here? You know, so. So you ended up in a doctor's office, you were diagnosed by default with overtraining syndrome and you healed yourself, you got back to health, but then you did something else. You pivoted and entered a new career path and then went back to school. So talk a little bit about what you did and then what you studied and and essentially why you're now on this podcast. Uh, Goodness, this was like, I don't don't even know. All I can tell you is that this was a decision. I will not lie. This is a decision that I made while I was sitting in a vineyard. So don't judge, but that was, oh boy, it was a crazy idea. Well, what happened was I just started to research what was going on with me. And, you know, I started to ask all these questions about what led me here and things started clicking in my brain. I started to be able to see this, I guess, from maybe an outsider's perspective, because at the time I wasn't really looking at it, um, from, I was not looking at it from either a psychological or a physiological mindset. I was kind of looking at all of the things together. And I started to just really see like, oh my God, this is this is way bigger than I think. Like people, our, our community is doing something here. And that thing that we're doing is we're engaging in a sport 
And a lot of us are using it in a way that isn't necessarily healthy. And so someone like me who's compelled to go out and run and run and run without that adequate recovery time is doing that because I didn't have the language for it at the time, but there's like a maladaptive compensation happening there. So um, I started, um, you know, when you're at the beginning of this, you're like, oh my God, I need to help people. And the first thing we think of is, oh my God, I've got to fix people physiologically, right? Like I want to, go, I want to be a PA, I want to be a nurse, I want to be a doctor or whatever. But then you start to realize that this is not a physiological problem, which is why, you know, as I've said, yes, my experience with overtraining syndrome is what sort of made me start asking the questions, but this is not a physiological problem. This, what is happening in the community and the research will show us is that there is an underlying mental health problem, concern, issue, whatever you want to call it, in this community that is largely, I would not say largely, that's being generous, it is almost entirely overlooked for a number of reasons, um, most of which have to do with, um, you know, marketing and uh, messages that are not helpful um, and not realistic. So um, basically I, I decided, okay, I've got to look at this from a sort of mental health, a psychology perspective. So I had gotten an undergraduate degree in psychology. Um, I did a little bit of looking around, what did I want to do? I knew I didn't want to be a therapist. I didn't want to be a clinician. So I was like, okay, research. And I went back to school and got a master's degree. I say it like it took two minutes. Yeah, just quickly got a master's degree. Um, and I, I studied psychology because I knew that what I wanted to do was research um, the mental health aspect of this. I started to see articles with psychiatrists saying things like, yeah, it seems like there's more mental illness in, the, in this community, but I don't know why. And I was like, that's not good enough. So I really needed to start asking me questions for myself. And um, that's sort of what led me to go back to school and study, be this tiny little voice screaming in a void. <laughs> So, so tell us about your, your study. Like, tell us what you did, how you approached this, um, you know, kind of give us like the underlying, then we'll go into to what you figured out, but how did you design your, your study? How did you, how did you figure out how to approach this? Yeah, I have to say that my approach to this study was, um, it had to be as simple and broad as possible because I'm not, you know, I'm not 20. And I knew that this research was really going to be pretty much, I mean, you know, I wish it were not the end of the road for me, but I knew that basically what my whole goal was, was to open the discussion. Because what I really hope is that other people take up the thread and they start expanding on the research that I started here. So I was like, let me look at the broadest thing I can possibly look at. I had so many things in, in my mind. I'm so excited to look at so many things. But really in the end, all I wanted to do was ask the simple question, is there more mental illness in this community? And if so, what does that look like? So that is exactly what I did. And so the study is, was designed to understand what people's mental health, um, what they knew about their mental health before taking the, the, the questionnaire or the survey, and then use the survey to also um, assess risk so that we could understand what they knew about themselves and then maybe what they didn't know about themselves. And so how did you how did you find participants? How many participants were there and what were the questions on the survey? Yes. Uh, well, let's see. I had over 700 responses after I filtered filtered a lot of that down because, as, you know, certain things you have to get rid of or disqualifications for different things or incomplete information, blah, blah, blah. I ended up with 524 participants. I used the amazing people who are in the heads at the heads of the media uh, of the community. So I reached out to ultra endurance athletes of all different types. You know, I had uh, triathletes, ultra runners, uh, uh, ultra kayaker. This was a new one for me. Um, you know, schemo, people doing all kinds of stuff. So I, I mean, I have to say that the, um, the, uh, the uh, let's see, people at ultra runner podcast and I run far.com and, you know, the fast women newsletter. I mean, I used as many of the people that had the widest sort of reach. And I asked them to, to um, promote the study and I had an ad placed here and there. So people were able to respond and then they would go ahead and they would be invited to a survey, um, which had two, well, had a number of di uh, demographic questions at the beginning to understand things like gender and age and um, how much 
hours per training they were doing, what sport they were playing, whether or not they knew they had a prior diagnosis of mental illness. If so, what was that? Um, and then they did two major questionnaires, which are standardized instruments in the psychology world. That means that they've been tested a million times before and they're extremely um, viable and valid. So one is called a PHQ, which is basically just a patient health form. You've probably taken it a million times every time you go to a doctor's office, we're all real familiar with the questions. Um, it is great at telling us um, what our risks are across nine different parameters. And then because um, there was a, uh, on the PHQ, it asks questions about your eating habits, but it is directed toward, it's weirdly directed toward like binge eating. And I didn't feel that that was robust enough for this community in particular, because there are so many quirky eating habits that I wanted to be able to capture. And so I also had respondents answer something called an EAT26, which is an eating attitudes test has 26 questions. And it helps us figure out where on the spectrum of eating disorder they may lie. And by the way, this is kind of a little bit, I'm not gonna say dated, but it is a little bit dated. So when I talk about spectrum, I'm not talking about full range of possibilities for eating disorder. We're talking more binge versus under eating. And then there's a whole battery of questions that will tell us whether or not the person has disordered eating tendencies. So I felt like that was a little more what I wanted to do. The reason for that being is because, you know, anecdotally, I had also observed many people. I mean, let's face it. Have you been to an ultra? It's like people have weird we're quirky and you know, the people that have the weirdest eating habits that I observed were the people who you would absolutely not associate with an eating disorder. So they were like the six year old dudes, you know and they were having all these weird eating habits. So I was like, I need to be able to capture this. So I added both of those together and that was the full survey. Jill, was the, the um, you know, the pool of people that you drew from, was it, um, did you, how did you screen? Did you say, oh, we want people who run ultras we or people who are exercise or doing races that are longer than x number of hours like you didn't just take the normal recreational marathon or um but so what how did you how did you define that yeah uh, that was a lot tricky so what i needed to do was i needed to kind of i needed to well there's a couple of things about the ultra community that i knew first of all some people who run long distances uh in in a race try to train at very uh, minimal amounts during the week, let's say, and then they will save up for a big race and they are somehow able to work it out with their training that they can run very low volume. So I knew that I couldn't tell people that they had to tell me a certain number of hours per week that they were training. Instead, I had to focus on the distances they were training for. And um, to be honest, I designed this study and it was designed before the pandemic. So <laughs> That was real fun. Um, so it was designed before the pandemic. So what I did was I asked people if they had run an ultra distance race or, uh, you know, and I used language that would incorporate all different sports in the previous 12 months, or if they had intended to be training for one in the next 12 months. And then I invited them to tell me how many hours per week they were training. Um, and so that was really good at telling me also need people to be over 18. And I also needed people, and this is kind of an interesting part of this study, which is that the beginning part of the study was very specific about what you were going to need to answer questions about before you engaged in the study. So if somebody, it was very clear about the sensitive nature of the question. So it, it did root out people who were, again, not training for ultra and also people who would be uncomfortable answering questions about mental health which is a tricky piece of this. So we know that the people captured in this study were comfortable talking about their mental health. I can't really go on and say too many implications from that, but we know they were comfortable with their mental, of talking about their mental health and potentially um, sticky kind of topics, but that they were also training for the intent to run or participate in an ultra endurance event. Got it, that makes sense. We wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to thank our friends at RNJ Sports for their support. RNJ is our go-to expert on all things running gear related, particularly running shoes. If you've struggled with finding the right shoes, the staff at RNJ can help solve just about any problem or issue. As a small locally owned business, RNJ is heavily involved in and supportive of the local running community. They get runners. They are runners. RNJ has been an enthusiastic supporter of our podcast and our training programs, including our Montgomery County Public Schools program. We are so appreciative of their support. 
Check them out online at rnj, that's rnjsports.com. So tell us what, what you found out and tell us, tell us where, what, what answers you got from this study. Oh boy. Yeah. So I, um, a, a lot, a lot, we know it's a big thesis <laughs> and there's a lot, but what are the highlights that you would say? What yeah. are the big takeaways that kind of where you're like, aha, or you're yeah. that really brought you those answers that you were looking for? Yeah, and I also want to make clear that I'm very excited about the research. I am not excited about that, <laughs> what I found, um, but I am excited to begin, you know, talking about this in a, in a bigger way because I really, there, you're going to see that there's a need here to, to really have more discussions around mental health in this community. So first of all, as suspected, the amount of mental illness, a prior diagnosis before we even looked at risk was way higher than the national average. So what I did was I live abroad, but I actually did all of this study directed in the United States. And I compared all of the statistics against what we could find in the general population of the United States. So I'm not saying that this isn't applicable worldwide. It, I'm just saying that for the purposes of standardization, this was done with the US involved uh, in, in mind, sorry. So, um, you know, people with prior diagnosis of mental illness was 37% versus the national average, which is 20%. Okay. And what's interesting about that, now that is known diagnosis. When I ran them through the diagnostics that would assess their risk, um, it was 47% versus 20% again. And so what's, again, we have to remind ourselves that that's a pretty big disparity. That means 10% of the people there are having, have issues and are not, they have no prior diagnosis. I'm not saying they're not aware of it, but what I'm saying is, is that they are not under care in any way. What also started to emerge from the research was that I was very, it was it, it almost immediately was, I could observe a trend in the amount of training volume um, with the amount of mental illness. And so when we break the groups down, and so what I did was I broke them down into under 10 hours per week of training, that was one group. Then I had another group that was between 10, uh, 10 and 20 hours per week of training. And then I had a group of people who were training over 20 hours per week. And what we do see is a direct, direct correlation between the amount of training hours and the amount of mental illness. And it goes straight up. So the more you actually train, the more likely you were to have uh, prior mental illness diagnosis. And by the way, the, the group running over 20 hours per week had a 57% of them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was really kind of shocking. It really was shocking. That's just to get started. And I got lots more where that came from. So, so I have a question though. Um, running is, is we've talked about this a lot in our podcast and we've heard from a lot of mental health experts that things like endurance sports, running, swimming, they regulate the brain. So, by virtue of, you know, let's say someone has had a mental health history in the past and endurance sports is a healthy way to deal with those symptoms. So how do we separate, is it a chicken or egg problem? In other words, is, is, isn't it a positive thing? Um, and I'm just doing this for the sake of argument that one who has a history of mental health is using the regulation of sport to temper symptoms and, and just regulate the brain. Um, so is it surprising or is it just a byproduct of how one deals with uh, mental health issues in a productive and healthy way versus an, a, an unhealthy way, um, such as um, chemicals, like yes. drugs and alcohol? Right. You said so many awesome words there. You were like, healthy way to deal with this and you use the word regulation. And that is exactly right. The problem is, is that this is unregulated. So just as you maybe would get a mental health benefit from something like Zoloft, let's say. You would take, I don't know what the dosage is of Zoloft, maybe 10 milligrams of Zoloft. You would not take 10,000 milligrams of Zoloft. We can understand that there is a curved relationship there, as is the case with every single thing we are, touch, eat, do, see, feel. The world we live in is based on curves. We understand that if we're thirsty, right? zero water is bad, like 10 gallons of water, you're going to get hyponatremia, you're going to die, right? So we understand that intuitively about literally everything that is healthy, because we understand that there is an optimal dose. It is the exact same thing 
for sport. It is inconvenient. We don't like it. The shoe companies are not interested in telling you about it. And up to this point, uh, even the you know APA does not recognize that there is a limit to how much sport you can do in the same way that it does about things like alcohol, sex, gambling, etc. We haven't had that conversation yet, but we very quickly understand that the, the issue here is not whether or not it helps. It's like how much helps because too much of anything good for us is going to kill us anyway, right? So well, that's what you hear a lot too. People will say like, well, yes, I'm addicted to running or whatever, but at least that's better than addiction to drugs. Or, But like you said, it's still an addiction and it's still yeah. unregulated. So I'm so glad you brought that up because that is a very significant concern in the population. What you find is that even, you know, clinicians will do things like suggest for people to take up endurance sports in lieu of substance abuse. And, and the issue is not whether or not that is good for someone. That's really beyond the point. The point is, what is the underlying gremlin that is compelling that person to need to use something? Have we absolved the person of that concern? Have we gotten down deep into the person to understand why they continually need something to take the place of an inner peace that I'm sorry to say, but we need to do better for people. We need to be able to provide them with the tools that allow them to live peacefully with or without running alcohol, whatever it is. It's giving like, them something. They're, they're exactly. using something, they're just shifting from one addiction to the other. And like, yeah, that's that's interesting. Have you, do you see particular mental health diagnoses or, um, you know, do you see like, is it eating disorders? Is it depression? Is it anxiety? Is it OCD? Are there any in particular that come up more frequently than others? Yeah, certainly if you look at the research here when we're talking about known diagnosis, you know, people get diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I would say that the top three are depression, anxiety, and eating disorder. Those are the, the known diagnosis. If you look down at the diagnostics that I gave people, same thing, you know, alcohol abuse comes up quite a bit. Um, things like uh, anxiety, things falling under the guise of anxiety. So the various different flavors of anxiety. Um, and certainly depression. Alcohol abuse comes up a lot. I, it, it comes up a lot in this community, which, um, you know, we can, there's many different reasons why that might be the case, but it certainly is um, one of the top things. But yeah, depression, anxiety, and, 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 and the eating disorder stuff, it's, it's more about the disordered eating behaviors than it is for like specific eating disorders. Because again, when we start talking about very specific eating disorders, that is a demographic that is not necessarily represented in, in um, let's just say that we have lots of different flavors of weird eating stuff in this group. That's, that's really what it comes to. Um, I will say one thing that I, I, I really have to mention because it's one of the most, I think, scary parts of what I was able to find. And I, I hate this statistic, but um, there are an awful lot of people in this community that are also, but there's one question on the PHQ that asks, you know, whether or not you thought of, of um, self-harm or suicide. And there are an awful lot of people um, who said, who answered to the affirmative to that. It is also dose dependent, which is to say that the amount of uh, training that you're doing is also, um, you know, it, there, there is a definite uh, correlation there between how much training you're doing and whether or not you're having these feelings. And, and worse than that, um, you have 44% of the people in who are feeling that way who have never had a mental health diagnosis ever. And that's concerning to me is that there's people out there not feeling good and we're not helping them. Wow, those are really powerful statistics, Jill. And while, and it must have been hard for you as a researcher to sit with that information once the survey results were coming in to see this research. And it sounds like you had an idea that this was happening, but to have this, you know, on paper and see it yourself. And so while it's certainly not your job to find a, a cure or solution, um, and again, this is opinion because that wasn't part of your research. Have you thought about what needs to be done? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked that again too. Uh, you wanna know what keeps me up at night is there was one of the people in the study who I actually had to chuck out because he was too young. He was 16 and I, it was a male 16 years old and he answered these questions and he, I, I had to throw him out but he, he, he ticked the box for like almost every, you know, depression, anxiety, he had eating issues, he was substance abuse, all these different things. 
and he was training for ultras and he was running um, all these different races and he um, had no prior mental health diagnosis. And I was thinking to myself that this kid is probably a star athlete in his community. He is probably an A student. He probably has parents that are like, wow, look at our son. He is like so superlative as a kid, look at what he can accomplish. And that poor kid is hurting inside. And that keeps me up. He's the outlier. Again, this is not the typical age, you know, that we see in, in the ultra community. But certainly that's, that keeps me up at night thinking of him and where that person is. Obviously, everything's anonymous. I don't even know, you know, but those are the things that really keep me up. Also, I try to focus on, you know, where can I, where's the low hanging fruit? And honestly, I... I wish so much that, you know, I could change things over at, you know, the APA, the American Psychological Association, and that the next, um, you know, diagnostic manual that comes out helps us identify over-exercise as it relates to, you know, mental health and what we can do there. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Here's what I would love. Here's, here's what would be like my dream. When you go to a doctor for a regular, let's say, mental health, uh, physical health checkup, right? Often we have to answer the question, how many, how many drinks do you drink a week? Like, do you drink alcohol? And if so, how much do you drink per week, right? It's a question we get all the time. And a doctor, a physician is aware of what it means when someone drinks two drinks a week, right? Looking at their health history, like, okay, two drinks a week means something. 20 drinks a week means something else. It is understood in the medical community that that answer, if we provide, if we, you know, apply intelligence to that answer, it's going to give us not only some insight about the physical health of this person, it also helps me work on what I'm gonna run for diagnostics, right? Like what tests am I gonna give this person? How am I gonna work them up, right? If, uh, now I, again, and I'm not saying that this is a proactive thing that a doctor should do, which is to say to a person, oh, well, you run too much. No, that's not it. I don't, that's not what we're trying to do here. But we are trying to say that if someone comes into a doctor's office or a mental health counselor and they are, feeling depressed, they are, you know, not feeling good physically or mentally, and they are really down and they are really hurting. Maybe they're struggling with substance abuse or an eating disorder or whatever. And if we don't ask that very simple question of how many hours per week do you train, we are missing a huge opportunity to help a person. Because we can very simply, one question, we can very simply apply intelligence and figure out how to help that person in a better way. So not as a proactive um, sort of, let's say, part of a triage, you know, like, oh, you know, I see you're running 15 hours per week. That's way too much for you. I'm saying where there is a person who is showing clear signs of needing either psychological or physiological assistance, if we are able to ask them this question, if any physician would be like, thrilled to be like, oh my gosh, this person is running 25 hours per week. Now I know where to go with this because this is a different person than that same, let's say, um, the same set of symptoms in a person who is not running at all or not doing any training at all. Those are two different people and they require two very different sets of care. How do you think these, these you know, individuals, how do they overcome that? And how do I mean, and maybe how did you overcome? How did you get past that overtraining syndrome? And how do you, you know, when you're coping was it just, it's probably the same questions asking, how do we help cure an alcoholic? And it's dealing with the underlying issues, but how do you get somebody who's used to training that much? And, you know, athletes who are, you know, they feel like if they don't run a certain number of miles at a certain pace, a certain number of times a week that they start to feel like, and it can build, you know, they're started 10 miles a week and 10 hours a week, and then they're 11 and they're 12. And and if they do any less, they feel like they're failing as an athlete. How do we get those people to to, to back off and before they, before they get to the overtraining syndrome where they harm their bodies. Right. Yeah. So just to separate all this out so that I know it's, it's like, I do this too. I get confused with like overtraining syndrome and exercise addiction and the sort of mental health stuff. And it's like, it's very difficult. The way, and your question was perfect because it's so difficult to separate out all these things. They are part and parcel of each other. All I have done with my research is pull out one part of this and say, there is a mental health issue in this community. And that mental health issue is, uh, it really begins to inform our behaviors. And then those behaviors, because of the particular nature of this, lead to, unfortunately, physiological pathology, right? And so we say to ourselves, like, 
what do we do? How do we how do we do this? Well, two things. First of all, you know, we need to begin to embrace the concept of that curved relationship because not everyone is going to have the same I, I hate to use the word limits, but really and but people have heard me say this before but it's like we're not weak for saying we have limits we're stupid to say we don't like by respecting those limits is what makes us better athletes and so what we need to do is change the narrative change the discussion around those limits to understand that those limits are those are your guideposts like understanding where you're going to redline it's it's not cute to redline it actually is cutting down your ability to be the best athlete you can be once you start brushing up against those boundaries you're really um, not allowing your athletic ability to come to its full fruition so changing this sheepish concept of of training too much and you know, racing too much and oopsie, I had my midnight ultra sign up little, oh, I didn't mean to click the button. Like, no, that's, we need to understand that every time we do that, when our body is not ready to, we potentially limit um, the number of years that we can continue to participate in the community. So changing that narrative is really important. And that's, you know, that takes a village. That's like the entire everybody. Um, but also, really, really understanding that that time where your body is in stasis, because this is another thing I cannot stand is the active rest day, the active rest day. That is like the worst part of this. It is, you know, it is never the right thing to do. When I talk about a rest day to athletes, I'm like, no, you got to understand that everyone's heard me say this, like laptop on the belly, Netflix, feet up, couch, like nothing. When your body is in stasis, when you sleep, by the way, that's the other thing is, you know, getting enough sleep. That is when all of your hard efforts are given the chance to really solidify, to really take, take, um, take hold and, and eventually help you become a better athlete. So romanticizing instead of the over, you know, overrunning or running too much or training too much, let's romanticize that like time of stasis of supine. Like that's, that's where you want to be as an athlete. How do you be the best athlete? Like the most time you can spend supine, you know, and, and balancing that, um, you know, having people fall in love with recovery. Like that is really where it's all about. Cause you're not going to change people. People are never going to run. And it, like, no one's ever going to finish your run and be like, well, that sucked. Like, no, everyone's going to feel better when they run. Everyone's going to feel better after they train. Um, problem is that we have to help them understand that in order to be able to keep doing that, you have to take the time off too. You have to be able to feel what your body's telling you. And you have to understand that again, those limitations don't diminish you. They make you stronger. Um, that's something we talk about a lot on our podcast. And we've had guests about the importance of recovery and of course, the importance of sleep. Um, but it sounds to me, and, and this is a leading question, but uh, it's really hard to change sort of the protocols for physicians, but it's a lot easier to change the protocols for coaches. So um, if there's one takeaway for Lisa and me with your study that was published in Outside Magazine, um, that is that it's important for coaches to make mental health of coaching clients a priority. And while certainly coaches aren't therapists, it's important to have the data and the information to know what warning signs to look for. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely. I think, first of all, I think that, um, you know, obviously not everyone can um, be fortunate enough to have a coach. If you do have a coach, um, if you are looking for your coach to be a drinking buddy, don't, you know, that's not what a coach is. A coach is going to tell you the hard things and tell you um, that you should respect those difficult things like not running as much and uh, potentially doing less than what you think you need to. Um, and those are, that's what you hire a coach for to keep you in check. And if you feel like you need that, that's, that's what you should do. Um, and so I will say though, that for coaches, I mean, obviously it's, it depends on the age group of the person that you're working with. It depends on how amenable they are to listening to things. What I do know based on the research is that people out there are running for different reasons and not all of them are adding to their overall health physically or mentally. And it's a huge burden to put on coaches to be like, well, you should be looking out for that. But if you at least know in the back of your mind that not every athlete is running for the sake of it. Some of us are running off a divorce. You know, some of us are running off 
other problems, uh, you know, a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one, you know, COVID problems, you know, family issues, financial issues, eating disorders, alcohol abuse. A lot of us are out there running for different reasons. And if we're just aware that it's not all like, you know, the cover of a running magazine all the time, you know, and that we're really just humans trying to make it through, right? Especially right now, after, I mean, after this last couple of years, like we're all in a rough spot. And so the more empathy we can extend to each other, knowing this data is true, you know, knowing this is behind us, um, the more empathy and care that we can provide for each other as coach, from coach to athlete, coach to coach, athlete to athlete within the community as a whole, to be just more careful and welcoming to each other and just try to keep doors open. That's really, I think the best we can hope for. Uh, very well said. My my wrap up question was going to be, you know, what would you like runners to take away from your study? You know, marathoners, ultra, all all sorts of athletes. What what do you hope that our listeners um, take away from from your studies and and what you learned? Um, so it sounds like that. But if you'd like to add anything, you know, there, what 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 do you really feel is like the most important takeaway uh, for athletes? Uh, you you can run, but you can't hide. And we, we, we say that a lot. Running is running is good therapy, but it doesn't it doesn't take the place of therapy. Yeah, running running is I will take that one step further, which is running is not therapy. Therapy is therapy, but when you are training for a reason that is not for your physiological benefit, which is if we ask ourselves a question like, why am I lacing up my shoes today? And again, I just, you know, I'm always using running as sort of the but for whatever sport it is, right? So like if you ask yourself why you're lacing up your shoes and it's not for a reason that has to do with just, you know, just running to, to, to perform better for a race. I mean, ask yourself, are you running off last night's dinner? I mean, let's be real. Are you uh, running because you want pancakes later? Are you running because you're sad about something? Are you running because you don't want to be home? Are you running because you're lonely? Are you what? Let's really ask ourselves why we're going out there and let's filter out the miles that are, there for our physical training and let's filter out the miles that are there you know as a compensation i want people to run forever and the only way you can do that is if you understand the 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 benefits to training and the benefits to not training no matter how many times you lace up for a run if you don't deal with the issues you have inside if you don't deal with the pain inside it it, it it's never going to go away it's never gonna go away. You gotta to get to that heart of things. Um, the shoes, you will run through pairs of shoes till the day you die. They're never gonna fill up what's inside that needs to be filled. So if you love running, if you love um, the sport and you don't wanna stop, take the time to understand what's going on inside and, and, and don't run away from it because it'll always be there, I promise. Well, we will put a pin on it there because that's a that's a great note to end on. And thank you for all that you've done um, for the community with your research. And we wouldn't be surprised if a book at some point is forthcoming from you, Jill. Um, but in you the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, um, let us know where listeners can find you and a little bit more about your research. Yeah. So. Um... The best place I think to go is probably my website, which is very easy. It's just jillcolangelo.com. Um, and from there, you can send me a message. You can send me an email. Um, you can read my research. There's a link to it there. You can um, Google Jill Colangelo Harvard uh, and you'll get my research right there. If you um, go to the, the website, it's pretty simple, but it'll also... Um, yeah, it'll just, you can, you can reach out to me there. I, I, um, somebody, I spoke to a graduate student last week and she was like, you must be getting so many emails. I don't care. Send me emails. Like if you have questions, talk to me. I want to hear from people because, um, I spent a lot of time working on this and I'm here for everyone. So if you have a question, if you want to talk to me, if you want to yell at me, I love that. Hey, listen, I'm from Rhode Island. <laughs> don't yell at me. I will yell back. Okay. No, but uh, <laughs> please don't hesitate to reach out to anybody. I'm happy to, happy to talk about it all. All right. Well, thank you, Jill, for um, all of this great information and for taking the time to come on our podcast. And we look forward to hearing more about your research um, in the future. So in the meantime, take care and uh, happy running to you. Thank Thanks, you. Jill. Thanks, Jill. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. 
And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.